Previously on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I'm sick of dancing around here, you know, with booze. Uh, you know, one minute we're mates and the next minute we're enemies. And I just got so tired of the civil war yeah. in my head that I said, yes. you know what? I'd like to see what I'm, I'm like without it. So I stopped drinking for a year and I made it like a project. And I said, I want to see if this is A, worth it, or B, hard to do. So that's what I did. Oh, and I, I, in the book, I have 10 things I learned from that year of, of not drinking. Giving the booze a break is something that many of us might be considering at this time of year, dry January and all that. And if you are, um, I personally am kind of cutting it down a bit um, to kind of just like once a week. Uh, I think you'll find Dermot Whelan's story of knocking the booze on the head very interesting indeed. Sorry, I just said once a week as if like it's a massive sort of change in my life. But anyway, um, I think you'll find Dermot's story very interesting indeed anyway, even if you just want to cut it down a little bit uh, yourself like myself. Uh, In this episode from a few months back, he was so honest about why he gave it up, what made him nervous about the idea, how he stayed disciplined, uh, what the payoffs were, etc. We also had some really good crack. and I'm still, they still have them in my memory, some of his impressions. His Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right. Dermot Gavin, of course, is almost legendary for his Dermot Gavin. And Professor Snope was my favourite uh, from ha- Harry Potter. Uh, that's his Alan Rickman. Absolutely brilliant. Made me laugh out loud. And I put him through his paces with some impro- improv scenarios as well. So all you've got to do is scroll down the list of episodes on whatever platform you're on uh, and listening to it on. And you'll find the full episode with Dermot in May 2021. So if you're a regular listen to- listener to this podcast, you'll know by now that I just love to hear great stories. I try to mine great stories, if possible, out out of some of the guests. Um, And we veer towards guests that have lived fascinating, you know, perhaps unconventional lives and have a knack for telling anecdotes about the interesting things that have happened to them over the years. So when I came across uh, a recently launched book written by a man called Pat Egan, I got straight on the blower to him. Now, Pat Egan um, is a man who was extremely well-known Um, in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Less well known now, but he's still operating at a very high level. He's a promoter. So he puts bands and musicians and actors and comedians um, on stage and and promotes them. Um, uh, Pat is responsible for bringing some of the world's biggest acts into Ireland for major gigs. People like Bob Marley, Eric Clapton, Queen, Lou Reed. And even if I said someone like Freddie Starr, um, you might go, who? Freddie Starr? Kind of half uh, memorable. Freddie Starr was one of, was, was like the biggest comedy star in the UK and Ireland in the 70s. Absolutely massive. Um, and he's got a story about every one of these people, like being asked by a well-known criminal to give Bob Marley a bag of, how's your father? Uh, carrying a foosball table up the stairs of the Shelburne Hotel for Eric Clapton. Uh, driving a, let's say, lady of the night from Dublin Airport to Lou Reed's dressing room at the star's request. Pat has seen it all. Ronan went over and said, listen, lads, we're trying to set up here. Will you feck off? And it was only when they got up on stage to do the show, they saw the same two guys messing around on the dance floor. And the two guys were Mick Jagger and Eric Clapton. (laughs) Adam Clayton, I'm told, lifted uh, a couple of bottles of uh, wine out of the Strangler's dressing room. (laughs) They were aggrieved about it. One of the main guys in the band shouted at me. He said, keep those fuckers away from me he said they'll never do a support for us again <laughs> yeah good luck with that 
He uh, jumped up on the piano to sit on the piano. He slipped and he broke one of his artificial legs. So you have to find him another artificial well, leg. Well, he, he didn't have one with him in the car, so he said there's a pair of riding legs down in Kilkenny. <laughs> Great stories and banter with Pat Egan coming up in a few minutes' time. But first, something caught my eye this week. You may have heard the story about Maureen Lipman and Helen Mirren. Well... Helen Mirren is apparently playing the role of Golda Meir um, in, uh, in, in a drama, in a movie. And Maureen Lipman, who is a Jew, um, suggested that Helen Mirren couldn't play um, uh, Golda Meir or shouldn't play Golda Meir um, because she is not a Jew herself. And this, of course, raised this whole uh, debate about who can you depict cultural appropriation uh, cancellation, culture wars, etc. And it got me to thinking, and I realised, having been an actor myself, that in these modern days, it must be very, very, very difficult to be an actor. Matthew, darling! Hiya, Richard. How are Come you? in, my love. One of my most successful actors. I haven't worked since 2018, Richard. Is it that long? Yeah. What was it again? Love, hate? No, it was a psychopath in Fair City, remember? Oh, yes! Yeah. You give great <laughs> psychopath. <laughs> I just um, heard there was loads of work going on. A Merchant of Venice up in the Tivoli. Yes, they're yeah. looking for a Shylock. Oh, God, I love Shylock. If you prick me, do I not bleed? No, no, no I, I don't think so, Matthew. Why not? Uh, Shylock. Shylock is a Jew. Sure, I can play a Jew. Not in 2022. Why not? You don't have the lived experience, you see, of a Jew, I'm afraid. Oh, fair enough. What about the musical about Beethoven's life up in the... Uh, the, the oh, Liberties? yes. I love Beethoven. I mean, I was born to play him. I listened uh, to Matthew, his Matthew, darling. What? He, he was deaf. Well, I could play deaf. No problem. Matthew, <laughs> let me put it like this. Sorry, Richard, can you speak up? I, I can't Sorry, hear you. what? <laughs> it's just a bit of a joke. Right. Sorry. Matthew, deaf is not a <sighs> costume, darling. You'd be cancelled. Fair enough. What about Born on the Fourth of July, the remake? Which part? Ron Kovic, of course. I mean... <sighs> Are not... you in a wheelchair, Matthew? No. Were you in Vietnam? Of course I wasn't in Vietnam. The I... lived experience, remember? What about Inspector Poirot down in Carlo? I think they're doing that again. I mean, I Are you the... Belgian? Of course I'm not Belgian. Okay, the bill. They're doing that again. Aren't they over in England? The You're bill. not I... a policeman, Matthew. I don't, I don't have to be a policeman. I could be one of the other or guys. Or a criminal. Jesus. What about voiceovers? That animation series. Yeah? Yes, well, the only part left is the part of the crab. Oh, come on. You're not going to tell me that I have to be a crab. No, 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 I'm not. He is a gay Chinese crab. A gay Chinese yes. crab? This is madness. What about Daniel Day-Lewis and Christy Brown, my left foot? He didn't have cerebral palsy. Yes, and it was a pathetic, reductive impersonation. Richard, he won an Oscar! But today, he'd be cancelled. Is there anything for me? What about what about the Michael Collins thing? Is there any... Michael Collins is tricky, well, look, I, I was born in Cork. I, I mean, know, I was in, I was I in know, the army for two years. I voted I for know, the Gale in the last election. See, I mean, Michael Collins yeah. is dead. Yeah, so? The producers are looking for somebody with that particular condition. Sorry? They're looking for somebody who's dead? Besides, the role is gone. To who? Sidney Poitier. He's black! Was. What? He's also dead. And unlike you, he won't be cancelled. Jesus Christ. See you next year, Matthew. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that sketch. I really enjoyed doing it. It's a little different for us. Um, and I really enjoyed putting it together. So, have you been down to Curry's January sale yet? Have you? If you haven't, get in there fast and bag yourself a nice bargain. There are tons of great deals to be had in your nearest Curry store. And there are also a few celebs getting in on the action. 
Oh, forget about your fears and forget about your worries. They're coming in the cars and they're coming in the lorries. They're coming in, they're coming in, they're coming in the curries. curries. Christy? Oh, Miriam. Hi. How's she cutting? Fancy seeing you in curries. <laughs> I came up to get an old dishwasher. I know, the range of kitchen home appliances is amazing, Christy, genuinely. That's right, curries are offering free delivery on large home appliances oh, and all. I know, it's incredible. This is a great model here, look at this one. Fair play, Christy. How are you? Ronan, Jesus. What Ronan? Are you? This is the only way I could track you down, Christy. Listen, I'm thinking of doing a version of Nancy Spain on my new album and... No, okay, that's the answer. Fair play, give us a chance. No matter how I wonder, I'm still... Abby, Jesus in Bigora. Top of the morning to you, Makushlas. Michael Flatley, what are you doing here? Abby Gabs, for the new year, I've decided to count me steps so I have. <gasps> sure don't curries have a great range in garments and Fitbits to help keep a track of me all leppin'. How are you doing, lads? Daniel O'Donnell, shiver me shamrocks. Oh, lads, now look at this. This is the TV for me. Curries are the king of the large screen for the January sales, so they are. Well, I kind of had my eye on this one myself, Daniel. But this is a 60-inch, Miriam. Yeah, but... And I'm 60 now, so <laughs> I am. One inch for every year of my life. Sure, you wouldn't be interested in something like that, would you? Actually, no, I'm more of a 35-inch girl myself. <laughs> Oh, I told you once and I told you twice The curries, January sales, they're nice They won't be beaten, they'll never be beaten They'll never be, never be beaten on price Get up to the yard and get into curries Remember folks, curries will never be beaten on price So get yourself down to your nearest curry store And bag yourself a great deal on your favourite kitchen appliances TVs and consumer tech And much, much more Thanks to Curry's for all their support from the Mario Rosenstock podcast in 2021. More of the same in 2022. And of course, thanks to you for listening, subscribing, following and recommending the podcast to your friends and family. I get loads of emails off you. Uh, I have to say they're generally favourable. So thank you very much. Um, And I get back to most of them. Um, My email is mariorosenstock at gmail.com. You can email me about whatever you want. If it's about the show great. If it's about the sketches, great. If it's about characters you'd like me to do, great. If it's about people you'd like me to have on the podcast, even better. But give me a follow, give me a rating, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it. Anyway, uh, let's get back to my chat with Pat Egan. His book is called Backstage Pass, and that is certainly what you're about to hear. An insider's view into some of the biggest and most bizarre gigs in Ireland. Let's kick off, will we? With the time Pat brought reggae legend Bob Marley to Dublin. So you, you brought in Bob Marley to yeah. Ireland. Tell us about bringing in Bob Marley and meeting him. Bob Marley at that time was, uh, had broken internationally, but he was more than just a, a, a music figure. He was a kind of revolutionary, the whole Rastafarian thing or whatever. Yeah. And I remember I, I wanted to do it in the RDS and they rejected it on the grounds that he was a, a cult leader, Rastafarianism okay. or whatever. They didn't yeah. want that in the RDS, yes. which they wouldn't get away with. Now, you yeah. know, because things have changed yeah. so much or whatever. So uh, he also insisted I wanted to charge 10 quid a ticket, but Bob said tickets are too dear at 10 quid that you can only charge 750. Okay. So uh, was this part of his, let's say, you know, egalitarian kind of yeah, man of the people, was, working he was, man's. He was on top of what was going on in, in the business as well. A lot of musicians are guys who just arrive and you've probably signatures out. They arrive, they play their gig. They've no idea what's coming in at the door or whatever it was or what price the ticket was. Mm. Uh, maybe more so today, but in those days, they certainly didn't. Mm. So, but Bob uh, was across the business as well. He was. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was in the sense that he didn't want somebody to be coining on him and making an yeah. awful lot of money. Yeah. 
you know, on the now, just in relation to somebody like Bob Marley back in the seventies, uh, uh, Pat, how do you said how does a deal like that transpire with Bob Marley? Do you do you have to like, for example, just for the listeners here, and you know, it's very complicated these kind of things. Well, do you have to sort of do you, become, do you have to sort of pay Bob Marley a, a, an advance fee up front? Yeah, well, it's become more complicated now. But in those days, was well, Bob Marley's fee was sixty thousand US dollars in nineteen eighty, which was big money. It is big money. Yeah. So, uh, and did you have to? What did you do about that? that? They would the 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 deals in the music business have from the early days. I always worked on an eighty twenty. I got twenty percent of mm. the net, and the artists would take eighty percent of the net, including a guarantee. Mm. You know, they always wanted their guarantee. But if you were making a bit at the other end, they wanted a bit of that as well. Yeah. So, uh, so the situation with Marley was that uh, I would have paid. 50% up front mm. once the deal was done mm. and then 50% once the show had taken right. place. Right. So you have to pay Bob Marley 30,000 up front. And where yeah. do you get 30,000 in 1980? Well, I had a very successful record business and I also had a partner, Oliver Barry, who's who's the man who brought in uh, Michael Jackson and, and Frank Sinatra yeah. and then all those. So they can help you to front the money? Yeah, more or less. But... Um, the money wasn't necessarily, I'm not saying it wasn't a problem. It was a problem if you lost it. Yeah. But uh, it wasn't a problem when you had an act. You know, that's why the deals have changed so much. In In the early days, you got an 80-20. And then I remember doing the deal with Van Morrison and the deal was 90-10, uh, which was a very, very tight deal in those days. And now it has gone to where when I started with Billy Conley first, it was in 80-20. The last, very last gig Billy Conley played was in Dublin for for myself. And it was a, a great a great thing for me that, you know, not that he was coming to the end of his career, but that the very last show of his life was done in Dublin in the yes. Tree Arena two years ago. Yes. Uh, so when I did Billy Conley first, it was in 80-20. Yeah. The last one was in 92 and a half, seven and a half. <laughs> okay. So it has come to the stage now where the big bands now the the Americans the you know the Eagles and the 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 U2s not Americans Irish of course uh, but the the very big bands now they take all the money that comes in on the box office now yeah. every single penny is given to them so if the Eagles are playing the the uh, the Tree Arena and the gross is three million quid less the costs of running the show they take everything else. Sure. The promoter, Live Nation, will take their cut from the ticket charges because they're in business with Ticketmaster. And therefore, all the money is, uh, you know, the reason you pay so much for your ticket is because so many people have to make a profit out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As so, I say, as I say, I'm 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 devouring this book with the Bob Marley thing again. Just to finish about him, there was a there was a there was a story about a Dublin criminal. Well, well, at that stage in the eighties, I had three. I had two pubs and I had a, a a nightclub as well, the waterfront. It was um, it was a period in Dublin in the eighties when. There was an awful lot of crime. There were bank robberies. There were all kinds of heists, all kinds of things going on all mm. the time. The, the guards hadn't really got on top of it like they are mm. today. So uh, running nightclubs was a dangerous kind of business. You were, you know, you were taking in money. It was twelve o'clock at night or whatever when mm-hmm. you were you were opening the doors, and uh, by uh, two o'clock in the morning, you might have eight or ten thousand quid in in. In the house, you know. Yeah. So getting that to the bank and stuff like that was always dangerous. But the uh, 
the situation with Bob Marley was there was a crime uh, gang in Dublin that at that time called the Duns, yeah, who were the one of the first of the of the big heroin dealers. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, they. They never caused me any trouble as such, but I think they liked the idea of mixing with show business people. Mm. And, you know, they had done their whatever business they were doing whenever they did it. But in the nighttime, they wanted to go out and spend their ill-gotten gains or whatever it was. So they would come to the various concerts. But I had a run in with uh, one of the brothers, Shamey Dunn, who... uh, Actually became quite friendly with me after that, but in the beginning he uh, lifted me off my feet in the in the, up in the stadium at a concert by my lapels, and he asked me, "Do you know who the fuck I am?" He says, "And I don't speak to ever speak to me like that again." So that was uh, the beginning of a short relationship. He turned up at Daly Mount Park with a, a present for Bob Marley. It was a pound of dope that he had brought in to Bob. When you were younger, you you go with the flow. Yeah. You do the things that are going on. You don't think about the people yeah. around you. It is that. Now, as you get older, you say to yourself, what was I doing? Yeah. Uh, different times, though, Pat. They were. They very, were different they times. Were very different. Do you know, here, I have a quote here from the book, right? It's page 60. It's Eric wants what? And that refers to Eric Clapton, right? And here's, here's <laughs> I love, when you talk about rock and roll, right? One of the fascinating things that, 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 that people find interesting is riders. The whole concept of backstage riders and everything yeah. and how that works and everything, right? But here's a quote, right, uh, from you, Pat. I'd been asked for everything from artificial legs hookers, fishing rods, white powder, sex videos, rare American whiskey, even a jet and a helicopter at short notice. But a 12 stone or more football table at almost midnight beat them all. This was for Eric Clapton. Tell me the well, story. he had done that. a gig. He had played a gig for the Irish Army, funny enough, in Collins's barracks, which is one that uh, is, a, is a bit of history in itself because I don't think any other international act has ever played a free gig for the Army except Eric. So he had a, a they were, that was during his drinking days to uh, when they arrived back at the hotel after that the manager who I had a very long relationship with over the years uh, Roger Forrester uh, he bought he, he and Eric bought Barberstown Castle because Eric went there fishing one weekend and liked it so they bought the place <laughs> so that's the way it was so when we came back to the Shelburne uh, Roger says to me this was near midnight Eric wants to play football and you know the big football the tables. tables. Yeah, yeah. Foosball. So uh, I had no idea where I was going to get one, but somebody said there was a, there was a, uh, a snooker hall or a um, an amusement place at the top of Stevens Green, just at the end of Harcourt Street there. Yeah. So I, I, I got on the phone to it, and I said to the guy, have you got a football table? He said, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, I said, well... I'm looking after Eric Clapton. He'd like to play it. He said, oh, that's great. Bring him over. And I said, uh, no, he wants the football table brought down to the Shelburne. <laughs> and the guy said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, you're going to help me get some guys. I said, we'll pay them and we'll bring it down, which we did do. And they brought the football table, four guys, carried it down the green, across the top of Grafton Street, down to the Shelburne. And it was dumped on the floor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> When I rang Roger then up in his in his room or a suite or whatever they had at the time, I said, Roger, I was delighted with myself saying, Roger, I have the table. Yeah. He said, oh, it doesn't matter now. Eric's gone off to sleep. <laughs> yeah, okay. Or whatever it was. So the table was left on the floor of the Shelburne at the, at the reception mm-hmm. and the four guys had 
disappeared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, it was moved into a corner, and the next day I brought it back to the guy, and he gave. I had given him, uh, I think, a thousand quid or whatever, yeah. and agreed a thousand quid with him anyway, and he uh, gave me back four hundred. Just, just reading that sentence there, though, I had been asked for artificial legs. I have to stop you there. Who would you want to get an artificial leg for? Uh, Ronan Tynan is a tenor, oh, famous tenor yes, or whatever. I know. Who, who, yeah. He was doing a gig in the concert hall. And, and he forgot he, his leg. No, he was jumping around the stage, uh, <laughs> which he, he does. He's a big, jolly guy. I know him, guy, yeah. Do you? And, uh, and he wears glasses. He used to wear glasses. He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he became a, quite and a he big... He was a very jolly man like that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he uh, jumped up on the piano to sit on the piano. He slipped and he broke one of his artificial legs. So you have to find him another artificial well, leg. Well, he, he didn't have one with him in the car. So he said there's a pair of riding legs down in Kilkenny. So we arranged to get the legs, brought up a police escort the le- because the president was coming to the show that night and the legs were brought up. But the trouble was the, the riding legs were shorter than his other artificial legs. So his trousers were too long. <laughs> and okay. we had to get a guy, one of the roadies uh, got a bunch of safety pins and, and shortened his trousers or whatever. Yeah. And anyway, the show, as, as in show business, the show must go on and it did. Yeah, well done, Pat. You got him his leg. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you might have lost your bollocks on the gig, but not the leg. Yes. No, I didn't actually, Ronan. Uh, <laughs> al- always made a few quid. Yeah. Uh, you're, you, you, you promoted Van Morrison. I did. Van Morrison is a famously taciturn, truculent yeah, individual. I had known, I had, uh, as a disc jockey, I, and when I was writing for Spotlight magazine, I was, you know, I championed Van Morrison from the very beginning mm. before anybody really knew him because I had gone to the Stella Ballroom in, in Mount Mary and to see them, which was Van's band at mm-hmm. the time. And um, they had just had two big hits in the UK. One was Baby Please Don't Go and the other was Here Comes the Night. Right. So they were terrific songs, yep. terrific records. So I was a huge fan of Van Morrison and I would uh, write about him continually. Mm. He uh, he went to America and uh, his mother wrote me a letter saying that uh, Van is very so happy that you're keeping his name in front of the public sure. and all this kind of stuff or whatever. And then two, a package arrived from, from the US, which was an album, Van's first album called Blowing Your Mind, mm-hmm. and two copies of a single uh, called Brown Eyed Girl. Mm. So I reckon they were the first two copies of Brown Eyed Girl to come anywhere oh, in yeah. Europe because it was way ahead. Yeah. And of course, the song is now the third or fourth most played song on American yeah. radio or whatever. It's yeah. still played today. Or whatever. So uh, after that, I had uh, been writing in Spotlight and uh, I got a call to the office. Uh, and I, first of all, I thought it was Sammy Smith, the journalist who, who used to be in Spotlight in those days, uh, pulling a, a scam on me or whatever. And I didn't really believe it was Van Morrison on the phone, but it was. And he invited me out to dinner at his, uh, where he was staying, a country house out of Navan. I arrived. The lady housekeeper let me in and said, Mr. Morrison will be with you in 20 minutes. Uh, 
half an hour later, she came back and she said, Mr. Morrison has decided he's not having dinner tonight. <laughs> okay. So you can feck off more or less. That's what I had really? to do. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's what I had to do because he invited me out to dinner. I presume he wanted to just have a chat with yeah. me or whatever. And I was really looking forward to it because yeah. it was a big deal yeah. at the time. I then promoted two concerts for Van after that. And uh, I met him in Cork at Cork Airport. Uh, he kind of grunted at me and sat in the back of the car. Yeah. And... Uh, then he was going to Dublin the next day. I was yeah. in the car. It took four hours in those days to get from Cork to Dublin. Um, four hours? Yeah. yeah. And I sat in the car with him for the whole journey. He never said one word to me. When we arrived at the hotel, he kind of grunted at me again. And uh, that was it. But I, I didn't take that to heart in any way. I was a huge fan of it. And he, whatever he was, he was. Absolutely. And, and, and he's a great was, artist. Yes. And he, your experiences with Lou Reed? Well, Lou Reed was uh, a big, huge star at, in those days. He had that walk on the wild side, yeah. which was one of one of the great records. Uh, and uh, he arrived at the airport and uh, he just said, are you the main man? And I said, yeah. He said, I need you to put his arm around my shoulders and I need you to do me a favor. There's a special lady coming from Amsterdam tonight. He said, I want you to pick her up. And I said, well, the gig will be on. He said, it doesn't matter. I don't need you at the gig. He said, you'll be at the airport. I want you to do it yourself. Pick her up and bring her in. Well, I had no idea at the time uh, the, the girl was a hooker. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I had I had gone looking for hookers before for artists as well, uh, <laughs> for Freddie Starr and a few other people. Freddie Starr ate my hooker. Uh, but, Sorry, that was uh, a headline. Uh, Freddie, sorry, I ate my hamster. I just changed. Hamster, that's yeah. right. Uh, so anyway, I picked up the girl for Lou Reed and he was grateful, said to me at the end, you did well, man, and thank you very much and whatever. So that was the kind of thing. Some of these stories have just a, they begin and then they end. And that was it. You picked up a hooker for, 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 for well, Lou Reed. Well, I just brought her to the, I brought her to the show. And yeah. she came backstage so that when he came off, she was there in the dressing room or whatever. Excellent. And he'd obviously met the girl before because she was special or whatever. So uh, that's how it was. Uh, Pat, as a promoter, what was your biggest success and your biggest disaster? Uh, my biggest disaster was Julio Iglesias, who I he was offered to me when his 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 fame had had dwindled really, and he didn't have he was a kind of wasn't a one hit wonder, but he wasn't far off a one hit wonder. He didn't have the longevity that someone like Rod Stewart has. So uh, I was offered him. So, to those who don't know Julio Iglesias, Pat, yes, he was the guy that sang to all the girls I've loved before. Who came into and out my door? Did he sing it with Willie Nelson's? I'm glad they came along. I dedicate this song to all the girls I've loved before. Sing it, sing it, Willie. That's it. That's it. He had a few other hits as well, but uh, I was offered him when his career was on the on the the downturn, and it was a one-off fee of two hundred and fifty thousand bucks. Two hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, I had to pay for the tree arena and all the other things. How much well. is the tree arena? Uh, the tree arena depends on your on the on the uh, numbers you want. If you've the five thousand, I think it's fifty thousand. If you've nine thousand people in, it's uh, eighty thousand. Wow! For the night, that's a big down payment. It is. Yeah, you have to put your money up front. Um, yeah. And uh, I thought he would do if he had sold sixty or seventy percent. I would have been into profit. Yeah. But he only did about 40% or less. So, so you were I losing a, I money. I had a on loss that. of about 185,000 <sighs> yeah. that night, 
which was the biggest loss. I had other losses and other things as well. There is no promoter in the world who gets it right. Mm. But I've, I have been very lucky. I probably got it right 86 or 87% of Just the time. Just explain to me the gamble of being a promoter. And I mean this... I mean this more specifically, the technical thing. So let's say you, let's say you have, let's say you, you book uh, Taylor Swift yes. and you say, Taylor, uh, I want you to do a show in Dublin. And she goes, how many shows? And you go, one show. Yeah. And she goes, I think we can do two. Yeah. Now, how does that work between one show well, and two shows? With the, in the earlier days, I can tell you how it works. Nowadays, it's changed completely because the tours for big artists now, like the U2, the Eagles, Sailor Swift, are all purchased maybe two or three years in advance. Mm. And the huge amounts of money are guaranteed to the artists. So they don't care now they don't care. whether the business is done or not. They have their money in the bank mm. and it's up to Live Nation to make it work. Mm. In the older days, it was different in that you would... Uh, you had a feel because having worked behind a record counter for a long time, you knew the value of a particular artist or whatever it was. Uh, so you would uh, you would offer them a fee, a set fee. And that's when the, uh, a little later than that, the percentages started to come in. So they weren't just happy with the set yeah. fee because they didn't want you to make too much money at the other end. So uh, it it uh, it changed in in recent years. The whole thing has changed. So uh, I would. Uh, so if 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 some if if in twenty twenty two you booked Taylor Swift for two gigs, yes, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing that. But anyway, if you did, and yeah. she sold out the first night, yes. but only did ten percent business the second night. Yeah, is it you that would lose money, yeah, not her? Of course, no, yeah. no, you yeah. would lose money because yeah. you'd pay her for both nights. Yes. Yeah. Wow. If they insisted on doing two shows, you would have generally when you see a lot of these shows where it says one show on sale and then they announce another one due to public demand or whatever. Mm. It would have been two shows from the beginning, but they'll only put one show on sale and then they'll try to generate uh, the second show, you know, with a publicity and hype and yes. all that kind of stuff. Yes. OK. Um, what about uh, so your biggest success then? The biggest success was, uh, in terms of financial success, mm. was with, uh, I mean, we do a, the pantomime in the Olympia and have been doing it for 15 years, which is always a, a, a good earner. Mm. Uh, but in terms of a one-off concert, it was, uh, I was, it was Sarah Brightman at the time when Time to Say Goodbye was a ginormous song. And she had done it with Andrew Bocelli. Uh, and I was... Sorry, Pat, I have to interrupt there again because now that I've been singing everything already, I have to sing this as well. Time to say goodbye. That's good, yeah? Not That's bad. it. That's it. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's become a classic song and a standard song. It's sung at weddings. It's sung at... Not at weddings. Time to say goodbye at a wedding. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> not a great idea. No, but it's uh, it's become a classic song or whatever. So I uh, was aware that uh, how popular it was in Ireland. Yeah. I went to Germany uh, and I knew she was going on tour and I did a deal with the German promoter to pay her 40000 a night. Yeah. Uh, and at that stage, I had said I'd do two shows. Uh, I was in the the old the old tree arena, the point at the time, and uh, the tickets flew out the door. The two shows sold out in a, in a flash, so I put another one on, and uh, that was another forty thousand. So I owed her one hundred and twenty thousand. I had put the ticket at forty quid at the time, which was expensive, and uh, I sold out. Um, 15,000, 16,000 seats. Yeah. 
and uh, it was a straight cash, a straight deal. Yeah. There was no back end in it, in other words. So there was no extra money for her if we yeah. sold out everything. Yeah. Uh, they had made a mistake in that. They should have had a back end in it. So I paid her 120000 and I think we walked away with, I couldn't tell you exactly to the penny, around 300 and something, mm. something grand. Brilliant, yeah. At the end yeah, of it. So yeah. it was a special one. Yeah, and did you become, uh, uh, when you were doing at your best, at your, at your peak of promoting, did you become wealthy, well off? No, I, I, I've... I was, I have, I'm comfortable, hmm. and I have been comfortable. But I wouldn't regard myself as as wealthy or whatever it is. Hmm. But I'm comfortable. I have a lovely house, and I have everything yeah. I need. What was the What was the What was the That was the biggest success, and then you talked about the biggest disaster. What was the biggest buzz, though, for you? There's, you know, there there has to be a there has to be a moment when you go, you see something happening, and you see it on stage. Or you sign a contract or somebody arrives into town and you go, yes, I'm getting a buzz out of this. Who was your I biggest su- buzz? I suppose there are two really because one was one that I had for 40 years and the other one was a short term one. The short term one was Sir George Martin, who was the Beatles. Yeah. Main man. He came to Dublin and he played three concerts with uh, a 75 piece orchestra or whatever. We didn't make a, a lot of money out of yeah. it at the time because the costs were huge. But the 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 actual, if you grew up in the sixties and you were realised what the Beatles brought to yeah. the world, uh, you couldn't get any closer to the Beatles than George Martin because yeah. he was the man who who really brought so much quality and class to the Beatles' music. You know, yeah. um, so that was an enormous buzz, yeah. and he was a, a lovely man yes. as well to, to the point that he demanded nothing. He couldn't have been nicer to everybody that yes. worked on the shows. So that was an enormous buzz. Yes. The other one, I suppose, is working 40 years with Billy Connolly. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, who, although, I, I mean, he invited me to his 60th birthday party in the Highlands in Scotland and invited me to his home in America and stuff like that, I wouldn't regard him as a, as a close friend because uh, he was a, it was a working relationship. So, mm. But it was great to work with him for so long and see so much, uh, you know, see him, his popularity going from the early days. He was never a show business celebrity like Julio Iglesias or those kind yeah. of people. Billy was, would come to Dublin on his own with a small bag and a banjo and he would come through the airport with all the other uh, punters off the Ryanair flight or whatever. He was never, he never demanded any kind of VIP treatment, even though he had the most famous face in the world or Mm. whatever. So it was, you know, you went from Julio Iglesias to Billy Conley and they were worlds apart, you know, Julio Iglesias didn't want to travel in the in the transport from the airport because it was grey and he only travelled in black transport. Okay. <laughs> uh, he brought his own wine and yeah. a private jet with 20-something people on it at yes. the time or whatever. So, and Billy was come on the Ryanair flight yeah. <laughs> and get off. And he used to say, you know, he had so many friends in Dublin, especially the guys like Ronnie Drew and all these particular guys, Jim McCann, Shay Healy. And... Uh, they were his mates and he never kind of forgot them from yeah. his folk days. And he remained on that kind of level. He used to say to me, you know, what will Ronnie say if he sees me arriving in a limo here or whatever, you know, because yeah. the Dubliners would probably slag him off or whatever if he thought he was getting above his station. Mm, wow, wow, wow. Um, what about, what about um, Elton John, your association with Elton John? 
Uh, they were the early days of Elton's career. That was 1975. Mm-hmm. The tickets, I think, were five quid for the yeah. show in the stadium. It was called A Single Man. It was him on his own, with uh, basically on his own. Well, he had a percussionist called Ray Cooper with him, yeah. who uh, was a big, big star as well in, in terms of the music and yeah. of his big reputation. Uh, and... Uh, we played the state, the boxing stadium, which was never really suitable for gigs. It's been used again now because of shortage of venues. But uh, it was uh, it was an eye opener at the time, and uh, I learned a lot from it uh, in terms of dealing with people. He had a manager, John Reed, who was fa- fairly famous guy in his own right, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he was. They were very difficult to deal with. Yeah. Oh, John and Elton and John. Uh, well, Elton El- obviously yeah. is the manager. Was he just liked to cause problems? Sure, yeah. He wasn't. If he he wanted everyone to know who was running the show. Sure. Um, oh yeah, lovely little story about Ronan Collins, the the broadcaster, the RTE broadcaster, Ronan Collins. Yeah, Ronan is a. a Go, and I go back a long time. He used to knock at my house looking for free passes for uh, the sp- spotlight afternoon dance in the yeah. Crystal Ball. And Ronan, of course, is a musician as well. He's, he, well, he's yeah, a drummer. He, played with the, he started off playing with the others who were a group yeah. at the time. And uh, I live out beside, beside Barberstown Castle now and the K Club. And... Um, Ronan, uh, in 1975, uh, Kevin McGlory, I think his, his name is, he was the James Bond producer of the early f- movies. He lived in, he was the, the, the lord in, in, in the K Club at that time, which was called Straffen House. Yeah. And in 1975, he, uh, he was famous for running wild parties anyway, and he had lots of Hollywood guests stayed with him. So in... Uh, in 1975, he put on Duffy's Circus uh, on, a, on one of his Friday. He'd have party once at the beginning of every month. Danny Hughes was a DJ, and it was Danny who told me uh, who told me this. Danny used to be on RT television, on, yeah. television in the early days. So the 1975 Duffy Circus at the K Club uh, was a big top, and the ringmaster was John Huston, famous movie yes. director, and he was all decked out in his big black boots and his red braised jacket and all that or whatever. And the actual lineup on the show was Sean Connery, Shirley MacLaine, Eric Clapton, the Chieftains, and a whole host of other uh, Irish acts or whatever at the time. So uh, Ronan and the others were the uh, after show band for the party afterwards. And they were setting up in the tent, which was, uh, you know, we lights were were dimmed or whatever but they were setting up in the tent and then they saw these two guys messing around with some of the gear okay so they uh ronan went over and said listen lads we're trying to set up here will you feck off and uh it was only when they got up on stage to do the show they saw the same two guys uh messing around on the dance floor or whatever yeah, yeah. And the two guys were Mick Jagger and Eric Clapton. <laughs> Interfering with the drums. Exactly. <laughs> so he tells that Roland says he remembers it to this day because it was a really unusual gig. Yeah. You had a you had a, a kind of a you had a kind of a parallel career as a nightclub owner as well, um, Pat. Pat. Yeah. And actually, I remember the waterfront now that you mention it. Yeah. In the nineties. Yeah. Um, do you remember? Actually, just off the top of your head, was there a bouncer that used to work for you called Jerry? Big, huge man called Jerry. 
Big, Not huge, grey-haired man called Jerry. No. Anyway, he never used to allow me in. <laughs> yeah. You've had too much, Mario. Fuck off. Yeah, um, so well, getting into the waterfront for me was always a well, tricky situation. I had a, I had a couple of places. I had a, a pub called the Angler's Rest, which is out at the side of the Phoenix Park. Yeah. And that was a... It was a dodgy kind of pub, uh, but somebody had said to me, you know, put your money into a pub uh, because you'll make plenty of money. But they never told me about the work involved. So I went from uh, the Angler's Rest to into Temple Bar, which wasn't Temple Bar as it is now at that time. And I went into a, a bar there called the uh, the Granary, which I renamed the Backstage Bar, which then mm. became Bad Bob's. Mm. Uh, so I went from Bad Bob's. Uh, when I sold Bad Bob's, part of the deal was, uh, it wasn't really part of the deal, but I had no option at the end, uh, but to take the waterfront as part payment for it. So I ran the waterfront for quite a couple of years. And, and, and in, your, in your capacity as a nightclub owner, you had one or two hairy moments, didn't you? I did, yeah. I, uh, as I said, the 80s was a, was a tough time in Dublin for anybody with any kind of cash, whether you were a bookie's office or whether you were a bank or whatever. So uh, one night uh, after we had a very success, in fact, it was a night Alan Parker came and, and decided he'd hire the place for the Commitments movie. Oh, yeah. And we had a great night that night. And uh, I went uh, to the bank, uh, as we always did, late on Saturday, early Saturday, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. And uh, we would drive up the keys. We'd have two cars, drive up the keys and into O'Connell Street, into Henry Street, up into Mary Street and the bank was in front of you in Cable Street there. Mm. And uh, on that particular night, uh, I had just come to the top of Mary Street when a, a car, a BMW, came flying out of the side lane, hit hit the rear of my car and, and spun me. And before that, uh, just at, at that point, a guy uh, was at my window with a shotgun, a balaclava, and shouting at me, get out of the fucking car, get out of the car, give me the money, give me the money. Uh, when I was getting out of the car holding the bag, the, the bag actually dropped on the ground and I was so paralyzed with fear that I couldn't pick it up even. Uh, but he made me pick it up, pick it up. And, and uh, so uh, it all happened so fast. It probably all happened in the space of uh, less than a minute or whatever. This was takings, was it? The takings, yeah. yeah they were taking How our, much bank, you talking about? our bank bag for the night, about 8,000 quid. Mm. Uh, he put a, the shotgun to my face and said to pick the fucking bag up. So I had to get down and pick the bag up. And uh, I mean, when you're in that kind of a situation, it's it's not fear. It's just, uh, just you're just kind of paralyzed almost, you know. So I, anyway, I picked up the bag and I gave it to them or whatever. But one of our bouncers was in the second car and he had the second bag, which had four grand or five grand in it or whatever. And he wasn't that keen to pass the bag over to these guys uh -huh. so I had to kind of shout at him Richie was his name Richie Richie give them the give them the bag give them the money uh, or whatever because uh, it was like it 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 was real but it was like watching a movie yeah. or whatever did everything slow down or? yes it does no. very much so and the, I mean the shotgun was on I'm not exaggeration was probably two inches from my face at the time mm -hmm. so if something had gone wrong maybe I'd have got blown to pieces but I didn't anyway and I, it probably didn't again as I said to you earlier on when you're younger when you're in your late 20s or 30s or whatever you ride with whatever is going on you don't think about it like if, if it happened to me today I'd probably die of shock or whatever mm -hmm. but at that time it happened 
I got over it and was back in the club the following yeah. Friday night, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's how yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, did you, we, we mentioned in passing earlier on that you, you promoted Freddie Starr as well, yeah? Yeah, I had a very good relationship. <laughs> did you, yeah? A long relationship with Freddie Starr. And obviously I, I, I he has, yeah, obviously he had a, a, you know, he came across like a complete hellraiser. And a, he was a complete hellraiser, but he was, behind it all, he was an, a really soft, kind of nice kind of guy. He had been very poorly brought up and, uh, you know, he had a stutter, uh, which came about because his uh, his father had made him, as a kid, made him jump off a, a table into his father's arms. But just as he was, just after, as he jumped off the table, his father took his arms away and he crashed to the floor mm. and he was, had to go into hospital. He couldn't speak for quite a, a while or yeah. whatever. So he carried a lot of baggage. Mm. He was, uh, he was a for the want of a better word, womanizer, I suppose. I'm not quite sure. But he he uh, he loved to have women around him. Mm. So that would take you back to the... And the an new, absolutely massive star, really massive star was, in the 70s. Yeah. For a while, yeah. he was absolutely huge. Yeah, and he was the highest earner in England during that period yeah. in the 80s. He was earning 10 million a year. He he died, unfortunately, penniless at the end mm. in, a, in a small apartment in Spain. Uh but I, he was a lovely guy to me, and I, you know, he got caught up in that U tree scandal in England or whatever. Yeah. Although he was never, he was never charged with any offences. It still destroyed his career. Yeah. Nobody came to the gigs after that, yeah. and so he he lost a, lost everything. Yeah, a general question which people like you who get briefly or even quite a bit up close and personal with some of these people is: Do you find that? There's, there's, there's sometimes people put forward the idea that the bigger the legend, the easier they are to deal with. Or is that true or not? Uh, well, it's certainly true in Billy Connolly's case. It mm. was easy to deal with Billy, but he was, Billy was an old folky, you see. He was a folk musician and he mm. liked to play at a banjo in dodgy pubs and that kind of stuff. And then they'd have a big, in those days, Billy drank, so he'd have a big fight at the end of the night with yeah. whoever, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but generally, certainly in the case of George Martin, who is probably the most famous musician, if you call him a musician, record producer, that I dealt with, yeah. he was... Uh, you know, the amount of people he worked with is, is amazing for everybody from ABBA to American rock bands and everything else as well. And the Beatles, of course. So he was a, an absolutely lovely man. There was no uh, no airs and graces mm. or whatever. And some of the smaller acts might have been more troublesome. Dionne Warwick was very troublesome. She was a big star, of course, too. She sang all those uh, famous Burt Backrock and Hal David songs. Have you to know. do it again. Why do you have to be a heartbreaker? Sorry for doing this. That's one of that's one of her. That's Barry Gibb's song. That's one of my favourite songs of her. Any, which she was very difficult to deal with. She when she arrived at the Olympia, which Pat is those, swaying along to this when I do these songs. By the way, you mightn't be able to hear him, but he's loving my interpretations. <laughs> uh, when she arrived at the Olympia Theatre in the in the uh, in the eighties, it wasn't. Uh, it was in a very very bad way. The Olympia it hadn't been taken over by by Dennis Desmond at that time, who did a great job on it since then. But. Uh, in those days, uh, she she wanted to know what am I doing in this fucking dump? Why am I playing this dump? Yeah, is what she said at the time. Uh, but she was troublesome. She only did fifty five minutes on stage and caused a whole lot of problems. People okay. complaining, looking for their money back. So there were people like that. But she was a big star, but she was troublesome. Yeah, 
Did you did you pay you two fifty quid for a gig? I did. I did. Um, I had a small <coughs> shop around the corner from here, from just in Duke Street here, and a record shop, a tape shop. Actually, it was the first tape shop in the country as well. It was ahead of, ahead of its time, and the sound cellar was in Nassau Street. So the bands that come in, all people would come in all the time, young bands and stuff like that. Well, one guy came in one day, blonde guy. Uh, his name was Larry Mullen, and I had a show coming up in Dunleary in the Top Hat Ballroom with the Stranglers at the time. So oh, yeah. he was—he asked me, who's doing the support? Can we open for it or whatever? So I said uh, to him, you know, I, I missed him the first day, but the second time he came in, I got him. And I said, listen, there's 50 quid in it. That's it. So he said... He, he really wasn't interested in the 50 quid. He just wanted the band to get on before a big audience mm. because there was 2,000 people there. And, uh, of course, the famous story of that gig is that uh, Adam Clayton, I am told, uh, lifted uh, a couple of bottles of uh, wine out of the Strangler's dressing room <laughs> without asking permission. They were... Uh, aggrieved about it and one of them just as they were going on stage one of the main guys in the band uh, shouted at me he said keep those fuckers away from me he said they'll never do a support for us again <laughs> yeah good luck with that so that well Strangers were a band that had, that had a great career as well and to still, be fair and to still them. are they are they're 40 years yeah. on and more and they're still there and yeah. they're still still performing but they didn't get to the same international heights that that uh, you too did, of course. Yeah. So that was my you uh, two experience. I did some other work for them as well. We uh, on their on a lot of their albums, our poster campaigns and stuff like that. And they, uh, Larry's always uh, always says hello, which is nice. Brilliant. How did you feel when the whole, you know, how did you feel when the whole business, really, the whole promotion business, turned into a kind of a it was it, it's it's now really a, a two player deal in Ireland, isn't more it? Or less. Yeah. Dennis, yeah. it's Dennis Desmond, MCD, and and Peter Aiken in Aiken. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Well, how did you feel you see, about I, that? I I kind of backed off long before that because the deals were getting so tight that I had made a few bob, and I didn't want to risk losing it on things or whatever. Mm. So I would do, uh, I always dealt directly with the artist and the manager. I never dealt with agents. Mm. I never got on with agents. I always found them obnoxious and rude and, and that kind of thing. So it has changed now completely. In Ireland, well, because of MCDs and Dennis's international success, uh, he would be the big player in Ireland. But Peter is probably the biggest independent promoter in the world. Certainly, if you look at, at Garth Brooks and all those other shows that he does, he would be the biggest independent promoter in the world. Uh, and that's a real, uh, probably a very tough place to be in this day and age because of the fact that the two companies run the whole thing internationally as well now, you know. Uh, so it's a much tougher market now. It's something that I wouldn't want to be involved with. I, I recently did a deal with uh, UCD to run 50 to 100 shows a year in Belfield because mm. they have a, a terrific hall there, the O'Reilly Hall, that isn't used up very often. So uh, I was to open in, in April uh, with four or five concerts, Paul Brady and, and Paul Wilkinson and a few other people were doing shows for me to open it up. But unfortunately, that's been put on hold as well. Mm. But my market is really is an over 40s market and... I hope to rebuild it, but it's been the 
pandemic has has hit us hard in terms of entertainment venues. You've cancelled, and then you're well, trying you're to looking at you're looking at one. Pat, pa- um, do you know that I have a great distinction of being the most rescheduled act in Ireland? Have you well? Because I my tour started in March 2020, and on the third date of my tour, we went into lockdown, and I had 21 other dates to do, all sold out. Yeah. Like five nights in the Opera House, five nights in the Olympia, the INEC Arena, all of them sold yeah. out. And I've been rescheduled five times, four times since then. Yeah. So it's well, been really, really tricky. In, in my case as well, at that time when in, in March 20, I had about 75 shows on sale, individual shows, yeah. not, a, not counting the pantomime. And uh, I have lost all those shows now. And in March this year, I'll have only about 10 of those left. And the big difficulty is you can't get into the theatres next year because of all the cancellations they're all rolling over all the time so you're now looking at almost 224 if you're looking for for yeah, free dates absolutely absolutely uh, pat fascinating stories thank you so much your book is called backstage pass a life in show business pat egan and uh, it's real fly on the wall stuff you really feel like you're there when you're um when you're reading the book um wonderful stuff there's a few people who've been listening to the interview um on the phones and they'd love to talk to you would you mind talking to them not at all. Not at all. So Ronan Keating's actually on the line. Say hello to Ronan. Hello, Ronan. How you doing? You're my, uh, you're my second favourite singer after Daniel O'Donnell. Thanks a million, Pat. Fair play. I'm absolutely a huge fan of your work. Listen, I've been listening to the interview and I have some ideas that I'd like to run by if you don't mind. Would you mind? Yeah, great. Let me know. Yeah, listen, um, in fairness, I'm thinking of doing um, a night in the Aviva, right? It's called Ronan Does the Beatles. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering, would you would you stump up the cash to uh, to, to bankroll me on it? Uh, I'd have to think about I'd have to think about it, Ronan. To be honest with How you, how long do you need to think about it, Pat? I'm uh, I'm not sure you have the credibility to. Uh, Can I ring you back in ten minutes, and will you have an answer for me there? I'm looking at two nights in the Aviva. <laughs> Uh, I think, Can you imagine sh- I, think it, Pat? I should give Dennis Desmond a ring. Can you imagine it, Pat? Just me up there singing, you know, Hey Jude, or I am the Buffalo. What would you think of that, Pat? Uh, I think you should talk to Dennis Desmond. Forget about Dennis. It's you're the man I want. Yeah, well, uh, I was trying uh, to ring Dennis earlier on. It's just the phone rang out. He's just I went straight to voicemail. <laughs> they said contact you. Are you up for it? Give me a call next year. Fair play. Thanks, Pat. Thanks. That's Ronan Keating. <laughs> um, Van Morrison's on the line. Um, Pat, say hello to him. Hey, Van. How you doing? It's been a few years. All right there, Pat. We've been there before, actually, Van. <laughs> Sorry, he just Good doesn't. Good luck, Van. I get you again. <laughs> he doesn't seem to want to. Talk. He doesn't seem to have anything to say to you again, Pat. I'm very sorry about that. You're all right. Well, well that was Van. Mar- Is he still there, Van? Still He's, there. Gone. He's gone. He's gone. He's gone. That was Van Morrison. Um, Christy Moore is on the line, Pat. Would you say hello to him? How you doing, Christy? Hope you're keeping well. How are you doing, Pat? It's an absolute great. Would you stick on the old headphones there, would you? Stick on the headphones there. Um, it's great to talk to you. And it's great to... Do you remember... Uh, the 70s and 80s are a bit of a blur to me, uh, Pat. Do you have any memories of me in the 70s or 80s or anything? Or do you have any memories of knocking around or any anecdotes from... Planksty or Moving Hearts or anything like that. No, I did a tour with Moving Hearts because you were part of that, all right. But, I know uh, I remember, yeah, go on. 
and I did a couple of shows with you in the stadium, but you fired me after that, so I really don't want to talk to you. <laughs> you see, this is where I don't know it's going to go horribly wrong. Um, brilliant, brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, let me see, is there anybody else that wants to talk to you? Oh yeah, Michael T. Higgins, the President, is on the line. Say hello. Hello, Mr. President, how are you doing? Well, yes, indeed, Pash. Um, as you are a stalwart of the Irish entertainment industry, of course, and, um, and it's an absolute honour to talk to you. And I remember, of course, that beautiful gig that you put on with Ronan Tynan. And he only had one leg at the time, and then I think he jumped up, wasn't he? He jumped up on the piano and you had to find him another. It was one of the best gigs I've ever seen in my life, Pat. <laughs> yes, Ronan is a star man, and... Uh, you just had to run with him because you never really knew what was coming next, Mr. President. That's the kind of guy he was. Yes, wonderful. And thank you for all the wonderful productions you've done in the National Concert Hall, of course. Yes, uh, until, until they threw me out or whatever. Wait, wait. Okay, Pat, you have to ruin every fucking anecdote, do you? Christ's sake. <laughs> Jesus, just let, a man get, just let a man congratulate you. Anyway, good luck. Good luck, Mr. President. <laughs> okay. And uh, Joe Duffy's on the line. Say hello to Joe. Joe, how you doing? Good afternoon to you, Pat Egan, Pat Egan, Pat Egan. Can I just thank you very, very much for giving Liveline the greatest day it ever had after the Julio Iglesias concert. We've never had so many callers. It was, it was a great, great day. And thank you, Pat, for putting on the show. You, you gave us a great... It was a total disaster. It was a disaster, it was a disaster. yeah. Joe, disaster. I'm, sti- I'm still trying to recoup the losses, yeah. How are you able to walk around town after Julio Iglesias? It's, it's beyond me. It is beyond myself, myself too. But the calls are coming in today wondering, they want to get a hold of you, Paddy, and they want to know where you live, if they can call over to you for this Julio Iglesias disaster. Catastrophe. <laughs> they want their money back. They, they, they already got their money back. They want more money back. <laughs> they, want you, they want your address. Are you, are you, are you, are you, do you feel okay about that, Paddy? Oh, yes, Joe. Yeah, feel great about it. Yeah, I'd do it again tomorrow. It was so much fun. Oh, Pat, you've been a great sport. Thank you so much for talking to the callers. Um, thank you so much for sharing your, your stories. And, um, and the book is Backstage Pass. And I hope it sells and a forward by Billy Connolly. And I hope it sells, sells it was, off the shelves. It's for the, the royalties. My royalties are going to St. Audience School, which is an inner city school in Merchant's Quay there. That which, is wonderful. Uh, um, which I have a, a, a great love for. And uh, so, good cause. Yeah, absolutely. Pat Egan, thank you very much. Thank you. And my thanks to Pat Egan. Um, for sharing um, with me I think he sta- he had to stay in the interview much longer than he than he bargained for I had him in for about an hour and a half uh, thanks to Pat for staying with me some great stories thanks of course as always to Curry's um, for their great support and great sponsorship and thanks to Dermot Whelan for reminding me of that lovely episode um, he did check out Dermot Whelan in past episodes along with many 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 more episodes scroll down and have a listen you'll hear lots of crack and lots of interesting moments Take care. That's it from me for this time. Same place, same time next week.